I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So when I've been asked from time to time how long I've been a Buddhist or like when did I start practicing Buddhism, you know, I often give the answer like, oh, you know, 12 years old, because that, that is around the time I started meditating pretty actively. And I think at the time that I really singled in on 12 years old, I was also about 32, so it also made like a nice round number, like, oh, I've been Buddhist for 20 years. You know, and, and the question in, in itself is, I think, a very, you know, uh, a very Western and, and very convert question in the first place, you know, like, oh, how long have you been practicing? How long have you been Buddhist? You know, because, you know, in a lot of places in the world where, you know, there, you have families who've been Buddhist for generations, asking someone how long they've been Buddhist is asking them how long they've been alive. So for me, for a long time, I would just say, ah, you know, since about 12. But the truth is, uh, that whole process happened a lot more gradually throughout the course of my life as I began to adopt uh, Buddhist views and, and Buddhist practices. But very concretely, I can pinpoint when I first was introduced to Buddhism, which also was at extremely, an extremely young age. I, I was introduced to Buddhism at eight years old. And it was through the film uh, Little Buddha. I don't know if anyone has seen that movie, but it came out in 1994. And I don't think it was like any big hit sensation or anything like that. I think it was one of those movies that, that came and went and in fact these days it's hard to even find it streaming anywhere and it's hard to find DVD copies or even VHS copies or anything like that. And it's even hard now to find the movie in its entire length. You know, there's some uh, TV edit they made at some point that I think shaved off like 12 to 20 minutes of the movie and then that seems to be the one that anyone can find if they can find it at all. But there was this movie that came out in 1994 that uh, really told two stories. One set in, in a modern setting in, in which there's this young boy named Jesse who was about the same age I was at the time, maybe a little younger. In 1994 I was eight years old, so shocking for some of you probably. And this boy is approached by these Tibetan monks because the senior Tibetan monk is pretty convinced that this boy Jesse is the reincarnation of that monk's teacher. And so they go on this journey of taking this boy to Nepal to uh, meet a couple other candidates and have this ceremony performed and everything. And so there's that story which is interesting but not really what captured my attention. What really captured my attention at that age was the other story that's told in little bits throughout which is the story of the Buddha himself. It's the story of uh, Siddhartha being born, growing up, leaving to become an ascetic, and it, his story culminates in his, uh, his liberation, his unbinding, his uh, achievement of Nibbana. And you can tell that I enjoyed this movie partially because I was eight, because the guy they got to play the Buddha was uh, Keanu Reeves, and so uh, he's not known for his stellar acting, and he's not really known for his stellar uh, accent work either. Uh, anyone who saw him in Dracula try to do a British accent probably cried. 
but he wasn't much better doing an Indian accent either. But as a child, I was just caught up in, in the magic of it all. You know, I can even remember the, where I saw the movie. You know, there was this mall that in, in town where I grew up, and at the time there was this tiny little theater that only had maybe two to four theaters in it, really, really tiny. And I remember myself being there. I remember the theater. I can remember the, what it felt like to sit in the chair in that theater room, and I can remember seeing that movie. I can't even remember who I was there seeing it with. It's probably my mom, but it could have been some other adult. I don't know if it was just the two of us or if, there, if my sisters were there. I have no recollection of anything other than myself in that moment watching that movie and seeing that story unfold. And it was powerful for me at that age because I was introduced to ideas that were in, entirely new to me. And not so much the idea that people, say, get sick or you know they get old or they die, but the idea that there could be something done about that, that fourth messenger. There's a part in the, in the story, of course, where you know, Siddhartha is going around and he sees the four messengers. And he sees those, those three, but then he sees the, the mendicant. He sees the person who goes off and, and becomes a monk and, and lives you know, in a state of austerity, practicing meditation. And that was a novel idea for me at that time. But then the really, really big, powerful scene of the movie, the one that's that really has stuck with me throughout all these years is, of course, once Siddhartha has given up the really harsh austerities and is sitting under the Bodhi tree. And he, ha he makes that determination that he won't move from that spot until he's achieved Nibbana. And in this version, they're doing the more you know, fantastical account of the story where he's then approached by Mara. And so Mara, for those of you who might not know, because it's not talked about a lot in the West, is, uh, you know, a like uh, an evil spirit king, like a, like a demon, uh, or like a, like a nature spirit that um, often tries to tempt and corrupt and uh, lead people into various defilement. And at that point, he was there to do the same thing with the Buddha. And in this movie, they, they cast this very regal-looking Indian man to play Mata. And so in that scene, he does look quite intimidating and, and powerful, but also sinister and you can see the way they were, they were perhaps showing the, the kind of evil intent of this character, Mara, as he goes and, and combats the, the Buddha, who sits in this serene state, being entirely cool and collected, free of defilement. And that, that scene lives in my mind, burning bright, the details of that scene. And it's funny because when I go back to watch the movie and I see that scene, it's not as powerful as the memory is for some reason. The scene is okay, it's good, but the, the way it exists in my mind is like modern day special effects, you know, it's like it's this big magical thing. And it's interesting to see how they, they show Mata in that movie because he is this, this sinister force but also seen as something uh, separate from Siddhartha in that moment. Like it, it is a completely different guy with a different look and a different everything. Contrast this to a TV show that was made several years later. Uh, this show probably came out around 2012, 2013, and it was an Indian show that was chronic chronicling the whole life of the Buddha from the, the months before his conception to actually I think even a couple months after his death in 54-something episodes. It was on ZTV in India. And then it was, you know, people could stream it for a time here in the States on Netflix, and that's how I saw it. 
So it was, it was a, 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 an impressive amount of episodes and also kind of a weird way to tell the Buddha story because it had more of that quality of like a soap opera. There was a lot of family drama and stuff. Um, and I think whoever wrote the script really didn't understand Buddhism very, very well. Uh, and it was also interesting to hear uh, the Buddha speaking in Hindi and everyone else speaking in Hindi to the Buddha, you know. Rather than calling him Buddha, they're calling Buddha because the way they say it in, in Hindi, they take off the last syllable. So anyway, it, it just it was an interesting show to watch, but um, it was more entertaining than uh, elucidating, to say it in one way. Like, I, I didn't learn a lot from that show, but I did enjoy that there, a show like that existed. But in that show, since they're covering all of the Buddha's life, they also cover that same moment. And there's also that same... Uh, encounter with Mara, but in an entirely different way that I think is actually important. Rather than casting some other actor to be in opposition to Siddhartha in that moment, what they did is they had that same actor play as Mara. And I think that that's an important distinction because of the way we can look at Mara for those of us who are practicing Buddhism in the West. Because a lot of us, we, we hear about the qualities of Mara, what kind of entity this is and how this entity exists and interacts with the Buddha and his disciples and the way he might potentially interact with us. And it sounds a lot like to us, uh, you know, the Western concept of, of the devil, Satan, Lucifer. And I think even some depictions really even uh, lend into that. In fact, even the show that I'm talking about, uh, you know, the show on, on the Buddha that came out, I think it was 2012 or 2013, in that depiction, even though they used the same actor, and here's that point, like, oh, yeah, that's good. They also gave him, like, horns and stuff, so they were clearly, like, making him seem like, like one of those figures. But I think what's, what's important for us in, in the West to know, and I actually think this is true of, of anyone who's practicing Buddhism all over the world, is, is to really uh, not get hampered down on whether or not Mara exists as a, a real entity. Because what Mata does functionally is absolutely real. In that what Mata uses as his tools, what Mata does to try to manipulate us with are what we have inside and what we face out in the world. You know, they say in, in various Buddhist traditions that the, the mother of Mata is ignorance, avicca. And so ignorance is something that's a very real thing that we experience in the world. It's something that we know, ignorance and delusion, as something that exists within our minds and the minds of others. Essentially wrong view. The various defilements as well. You know, sensual uh, craving, ill will, sloth and drowsiness, restlessness and anxiety, uncertainty and doubt. You know, the... Uh, the three qualities of you know, uh, passion, aversion, and, and delusion are things that we can see as very, very concrete, the way they affect the mind, the way they affect the minds of those around us. And when we look at the stories that we have in the Pali Canon involving Mata, it's very rare for Mata to show up as himself. What is always the case is that these disciples of the Buddha and the Buddha himself are able to see through that it is Mara that's interacting with, with them. But Mara ta often takes the form of another person or even their own thoughts. There are stories, for example, where 
um, a nun might be practicing meditation in the forest and various thoughts might start coming up in the mind or various voices might be heard or uh, someone might approach this person. In one case, a nun is, is deep in meditation and then uh, a young man approaches her. And this young man sees her and says, hey, you're a young woman, I'm a young man, you know, like let's, let's do what two young people do, huh? You know, like let's go listen to some music, let's go dancing and just see where the night takes us. And in that moment, she's able to see through what's happening there and says, ah, this is Mata. This is Mata trying to tempt me from what I'm doing here. And she gives some retort that, of course, crushes Mata, makes him all embarrassed, and he scuttles off, right? We can look at that story and wonder, okay, well, was this nun actually approached by some, some entity? Maybe. Was she approached by some man in the woods? Possibly. Was it just something that came up in the mind? I think that the, the appropriate view is to, is to allow for all three as possibilities, as potentials, because the remedy is still the same. One of the things that I've, I've learned about uh, forest monks, those who spend time a lot as hermits, is that because they spend a lot of time alone meditating and a lot of time just living in their own kuti by themselves or maybe in a cave or somewhere really remote, they don't see a lot of people, is that they start hearing things. They'll hear various sounds in the woods. They'll start hearing voices in the woods. They'll start seeing things in the woods. And it can often be the case that, you know, someone might ask, like, well, like, are those things real? And it's like, ah, I don't know, maybe. But then they, they have a very good strategy to get through this, whether or not these things are real. The strategy is simply to listen to what's being said. And if it's something useful to the practice, useful to the path, they listen. And if it's not useful to the path, then they cast it aside. So in the case of this nun who had this young man tempting her to give up her robes and go off and party with him, the solution's all the same. Whether or not it's Mara in disguise, whether or not it's some man who came to tempt her, or whether or not it was her own thoughts that just bubbled up and gave her some fantasy in her mind. The solution's still the same. These thoughts that are coming up, are they useful to me? Do they help me practice? This input that's coming in through the senses, what, it, what is it encouraging me to do? Is it encouraging me to do something skillful or is it encouraging me to do something unskillful? And we can measure in that way. Because in our lives, as people who practice Buddhism, as people who meditate, who develop skillful qualities, we have moments like this where something comes up and that something can be the words of another it could be some uh, actions of someone else but it could also just be thoughts that come up memories that come up visions that come up and it can be quite surprising and and overwhelming and in those moments we can give into reactivity and so part of the training is being able to take that step back and then see what's actually being presented to you, and what to do next. It's interesting that 
these moments can even happen while we're asleep. Recently, I, I was having a, a dream where I was in some setting I didn't recognize, but in this dream I was so mad at someone and it became extremely real, this, this interaction we were having. And it's not even someone that actually exists in the world. It's not someone I've met. But in this dream, it became extremely real, whoever this person was. And the encounter became so intense that I began, began shouting at this person, yelling at this person, and I had this big uh, monologue that I essentially gave them that was about you know, the fairness and justice of this. And like, I got really heated up in the dream. And even in the dream, I had to take a moment and pause and realize I need to walk away from this. And in the dream, I walked away. And I remember even in this dream being in the corner and somewhere in a room and just like, oh, I got to get this under control. And then that's when I started waking up. And as I woke up into my consciousness, there I was in my bedroom, in my bed, and the, all of those feelings had been carried over. I still had all of this this anger and this self-righteous fury and I, and I was man I can't believe I had a dream about that particular issue and then as I became to as I started to wake up even more I realized I didn't even know what the issue was the issue was completely fabricated in that dream that encounter that scenario didn't happen in any way whatsoever but the feelings the feelings were really very 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 real because those feelings can happen out in the world. That response I had in the dream could easily be the response I have out in the world. And what's more of a mirage, what's more of a, of a fabrication, what's more of, a, you know, of, of an ephemeral thing than a dream, a nightmare? I can only count myself lucky that um, I was able, even in that dream, to start pulling myself away, but it didn't happen soon enough. You know? Even in that dream, I'm realizing, like, oh, there's still work to be done. Because I don't want to respond with that kind of righteous fury. I don't want to be yelling in someone's face that way. And when I examine it, I can see how, that, how giving into that anger that way felt really good. In that dream, I liked what was happening. And that's how the temptation works. You know, we often don't really think about that, that aspect of it, that when we talk about aversion, when we talk about anger, when we talk about that, that discontent, when we talk about suffering itself, dukkha, that even in the midst of all that stuff that we say we don't like, oftentimes there's that part of it that we really do. There's this leaning into it that happens there. We can see this in more, more extreme examples when someone really just likes being miserable. We might know the type. Someone who's often complaining, but like likes the complaints. They like to give off that energy. They like to be miserable. And they often say miser misery loves company, so they like to spread it around, too. But even in some of the best of us who think that we have, have mastered these things, there could still be that sense of like, nah, there's, there's something I like about this. There's some kind of allure. And that's the realm that Mara lives in. Mara lives in that space where He's really showing you these allures of all these things, of passion, of aversion, of delusion, ignorance. And the same thing with, with hindrances. You know, sensual desire is one of those things that we often only think about the gratifying part. And even if we decide 
that we're not into sensuality, that itself can become a, a barb, that can become a trap, that can become some kind of ens ensnarement where we can get really caught up in our aversion to things. And we can go all through the list, but there's still that same quality. There are other stories in, in the canon where Mata shows up and whispers doubt into the minds of, of the practitioners, the people meditating, the people who are trying to develop quali skillful qualities, good qualities. And that can be a very dangerous thing too, that doubt and uncertainty. You know, do you really think that you're going to benefit from this practice? Do you really think that you're going to master these qualities? Do you really think you could find an end to all this stress and suffering? You know, don't you think you're just wasting your time sitting here, eyes closed? Like, what good could this possibly do? And that's an important one to think on, too, because I think that that's one of the things that can really uh, become a stumbling block for people early on in the path as you begin meditating. And the reason why is because when you first begin meditating, most of your meditations don't feel very good. You know, there are some people who embrace that and kind of hold that up as a badge of honor, how long they're willing to sit with their legs falling asleep and their knees aching and their back hurting and like, I did it. I basically ran a marathon, you know. Um, but then there are also those that just struggle through it and wonder why they're struggling. They don't feel the good parts of meditation. It's just this grueling exercise for them. And in those, those moments where, where someone might be struggling in their meditation, it can be real easy then to wonder, like, well, is this really doing anything? Is this really helping? We can hear those words and they can start taking hold. And when we hear those kind of thoughts in our minds, it's really easy then to take those thoughts as our own grasp onto them and, and, and identify them. You know, this really is just a waste of time. I could just get up and start watching Great British Baking Show, you know? I, what do I need to keep staring at this wall for? Or why do I need to be sitting on this cushion? Or why do I need to be uh, watching my breath? Or, or anything like that. Why am I even trying to practice this way? We can see why something like Mata could be a, a skillful tool, regardless of the cosmological and ontological implications. Because we can see then how we might start approaching things in the sense of, of not-self, and again, not in this, in this cosmic sense, but in, this, in the sense of taking a real measure of what we're going to claim as me or mine. With any of these hindrances, but in this example I'm using doubt, we have these uncertain thoughts that arise about the practice, about what we're doing. They might come up in meditation. And we can latch on to them, identify with them, and say, these are my thoughts on the matter. I don't think that this is helpful. I don't think this is useful. But what we can also do is think of this as like, well, this is a thought that came up in my mind, but I don't have to claim this thought. We might say in, in a helpful way that, ah, this is Mara again, trying to fill me with ignorance, trying to fill me with doubt. This is a thought I'm going to ignore. Just like the forest monks that heard some voice in the forest calling out to them. Is this something that's actually helping me in the path? Will this help me meditate a bit longer or find some sense of peace or pleasure in the practice? 
Is this helping me cool the flames of desire, aversion? And if the, if the answer to that is no, it's not helping, then that's something that's mata. That's something that's, that's uh, ignorance and ill will and defilements embodied, and we can cast it aside. But if it is something that's actually useful, that, that comes up in the mind, those skillful thoughts that can happen that really encourage us, because we also have that side too. I can think of times when I've sat down to meditate and really good thoughts come up. They're like, you know, this is a really good thing I'm, I'm doing. There's so many other things I could be doing right now, but I'm deciding to do this. Something that's really for my well-being and the well-being of others. I, I like that I'm doing this. This is a good thing that I'm doing. And that can act as a, as a sense of encouragement. And that's something that in that moment would, would be appropriate to say that like, yeah, I, I can claim this thought. I can use this thought. I can identify with this thought. If we think of this path that we're on as something a, a bit more linear, actually going in one direction and, and having a direction behind it, we can see how what the path leads to is what we call the deathless. What is behind us in the opposite direction is another destination, which is the opposite of the deathless. It's death. And what's interesting is Mara itself, that the word itself, has implications in its etymology that are highly associated with death. So we can even say that Mara is the lord of death in this way. In the sense that, he, that Mara as an entity is dissuading us from the path leading to the deathless and constantly trying to give us doubts that the deathless is real, a real possibility for all of us. And that is perhaps one of the most damning delusions, point of ignorance, wrong view that we can have as, as practitioners of the path, as, as Buddhists. The world over, but I, I think it's very endemic in the West because I don't hear a lot of people talk about Nibbana as a real possibility, as the deathless, as a real goal for the practice. So I think it's important to go to the practice with that sense that, hey, some of these thoughts that I'm, that I'm having about the path might need to be set aside because they're not helpful, conducive to the path. And if it's good practice then to think that like, ah, like the Buddha, I will say, Mata, I see you. I see you, Mata, for what you are. Then maybe that's a good thing to do. Maybe that's a helpful thing to do. Maybe then we can have a better sense of what thoughts to listen to. But moreover, which voices to listen to. I gave sharp examples of voices in the woods, you know, but we have people talking to us every single day of our lives. And those people say whatever it is they say, have whatever values they have, have whatever advice they, they want to give. And it's up to us to decide what we take in. If, if we have a cup in our hearts, what are we pouring into the cup? And what are we spilling out? I often think about that. Uh, and maybe it's because, you know, at the age of eight years old, I was introduced to the concept of Mara, which I think in the West is a, a, not a common occurrence. But to see those same qualities really put in that form as something external was helpful for me as a, as a, as a young boy meditating because I, 
did think of Mara as this real and true existing entity. And as I've gotten older, that's gone in phases. I have gotten through points where I was more agnostic on, on the issue. And today, I, I'm not secretive about my, my views, but I do think that they're uncommon amongst a lot of Westerners to talk about karma, to talk about rebirth, and to talk about the goal of, of the, the deathless. But that also, too, that we might have a lot of helpers and um, hindrances, let's say, that actually do exist in some way that we might call the, the spiritual, we might not be able to see with our senses. But then the beauty of it all is that in, in the scheme of, the, of, of things, the practice remains the same we are developing on this mental path, which means that whatever it is that's happening outside only matters to the extent that it's affecting us on the inside. And so we still ultimately have that same practice of looking at things in terms of whether they are skillful or unskillful. So what I present today are just more tools in that practice of refinement of skillfulness. So I think I will stop there. Thank you for listening.